Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Alrighty, so as a church we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, we've titled this Lessons from a Messy Church um, and that's precisely because church life can get messy and, um, and today is uh, one of those prime examples because in chapter 5 uh, we're going to encounter some uh, r- incredible kind of eye-opening, shocking uh, scenarios unfolding um, but let me begin by this, that I think that one of the great objections uh, to, to Christianity that unbelievers have is that Christians are hypocrites. Have you heard that before? One of the great objections that unbelievers say about Christianity is that Christians are hypocrites. And uh, I, I want to concur. I want to say that that is a concern. I think it's a legitimate concern for people outside of the church. But I also want to say it's a, it's a concern for us in the church that, that this is a real issue. Uh, I don't know if you remember the band DC Talk. I'm giving my age away. But uh, DC Talk had a, a famous quote in one of their songs, and it went as follows. The quote was from Brennan Manning. He said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so here in chapter 5, if you're not new, if if you're new to Covenant Grace, what we do as a church is we preach through books verse by verse. And so um, uh, if you're here for the first time, it's kind of like you're walking into a movie at the worst part. And so you might feel a little bit lost, uh, but I want you just to hang in here with me, right? Uh, In chapter 5, we're going to encounter an issue of serious sin in the church. But not only is it a serious sin, it's a serious issue of hypocrisy, which, which we know is damaging. It's a damaging witness to a watching world. And so here's the issue in summary form. We're going to read the text soon, but here's the issue. There are cases of sexual immorality in the church, including a particular case of a young man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Yes, this is in the Bible. So welcome to the movie. Thanks for joining us. This may leave you scratching your head and wondering what is going on, but the title of the message is there, How to Handle a Scandal. Chapter 5 is all about how do we handle scandals when they break in the church, and no doubt there are many. Throughout church history, you don't have to go too far, many scandals have ravaged the church. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at how does Paul address the issue this Corinthian scandal, and how do we deal with these issues? How does the church deal with them in the most loving way possible? So number one, let's look at the scandal, verses one and two. He says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Wow. So as we can hear, there actually are two 
problems here in terms of the scandal. The most glaring and obvious problem is the issue of sexual immorality. Now, what we are not sure about, and this is helpful, I did a bit of research on this, what we're not sure about is, is if the father is alive or if he's not. But what we do know from context and history is that we are pretty sure that the woman, the father's wife, refers to his stepmom and not his actual mother. That's not much comfort though, right? The other thing that is interesting is that the tense in which this is written, the Greek tense of a man has his father's wife, it also tells us that this is an ongoing issue. This wasn't just a once-off issue. It was an ongoing issue. And Paul's problem with it is not just the, the sinful act, but the tolerance of the church. That this is an ongoing issue, which in verse 2, he has the second part of the problem. He says, you are arrogant in not dealing with it. Isn't that interesting? Look what he says. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? He says, listen, you should be broken about this. This should be grieving you that this is actually happening in your context. He says, this is happening among you. This is, this is not helpful to a watching world, the issue of hypocrisy. He says you ought to be broken about this. And then his conclusion is, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so the second part of the scandal is the church's tolerance of these ongoing public sinful acts. And part of Paul's rebuke here, notice he says, not even the Romans behaved this way. Even in Roman law, this was outlawed. And he says, you're, you're supposed to be the church. You're supposed to be followers of Christ. You're supposed to be a, war, a witness to the watching world. And, and, and not even the Romans would have put up with this kind of behavior. The pagans don't even tolerate it, but you have. And so what's the right response then? Well, Paul's going to suggest that the right response is not only to mourn over it, be broken about it, but actually to correct the situation with what we call church discipline. Let the person be removed. So if there's a problem, and we know how this works in medicine, we know how this works in, 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 in school situations, if there's a problem kid, what we've got to do is we've got we to do some intervention. If there's a problem in your body, the doctor has to do some intervention to get rid of the problem in order to bring healing. And so what's, what's the judgment? What's, what's, what's the situation? Well, there is a situation here that requires some church discipline. So let me give you a definition, a, a theological definition of church discipline. It says this, uh, church discipline, and this is just from a theological textbook, church discipline is the correction of an unrepentant, persistently sinning church member for the good of those caught in sin, for the purity of the church, and the glory of God. So let's see Paul's advice. Let's, let's see point number two, the judgment. So here's his advice. He says this, verse 2 and onwards to verse 5. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For, though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord. Wow. And when I first read this, I went straight to the footnotes, hoping to see a little footnote saying, well, Paul was having a really bad day, and this was the non-inspired part. But unfortunately, that footnote doesn't exist. And actually, I think, I think this, just, I want you just to hang in with me. If, you, if you're struggling with this idea, hang in with me, because when we get to the end, I want to, I want to suggest to you that I think there's a lot of hope here. So Paul wasn't just having a bad day. What does he mean by this? Well, he actually does want this person to be excluded from the church fellowship. He, he actually wants this person to be suspended in terms of their membership for their own good. Because here's the issue. The, what we could call excommunication, I don't like that language, but the suspension of his membership is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Because the spiritual reality is that your public, ongoing, sinful behavior is deceiving you. It's deceiving you into thinking that you're okay with God. You know, he's, he's thinking, I'm okay with God because, hey, nobody in the church is saying anything about this. I can just live as I please. I can fulfill my lusts. I can do as I please. I can sleep with my, mother, my father's wife, and nobody's going to call me out. And actually, we are going to call you out. The church needs to call you out. And this is a physical sign of a spiritual reality because what we are saying to you is that you are not in right standing with God. You are deceived. If you think you can live this way and be pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, then that's wrong. This is the situation. And the reason for this is is positive. Have a look at this in verse 5. He says we're going to do this for the destruction of the flesh. So it's to awaken this person because there's kind of a a veil that's come over their eyes. They think that that they could continue to live in this unrepentant sin. This isn't just a once-off situation, but continue to live in this way that doesn't bear witness to to, to a life of a believer. And so we're going to try as much as we can to come alongside the person, have conversations, have coffees. This isn't just, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on before this. Conversations, coffees, chats, uh, lots of is happening, but there's still no change. And so if there's still no change after a long process, we're going to do this. We're going to suspend membership for the destruction of the flesh, for an awakening So that, here's the reason, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, now listen, Paul's not being a meanie. Paul's seeing a specific purpose here. The the reason for this is to sanctify, to, to, to awaken a reality check. So that this individual could be shaken from their blindness. So that ultimately they would be saved and not deceived. And so this individual is, he's had conversations, there's been multiple people having spoken to him, and there is still no change. This is an unrepentant, ongoing situation, 
And now the church needs to act. The church needs to protect the integrity of the church. Now, in my experience, and uh, I don't think I've ever had this situation, thank the Lord, but there have been other situations. In my experience, most of the time, people who have had those previous conversations, if there is this kind of public known sin, and yes, we're all sinners, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about public, ongoing, unrepentant sin. Most of the time, these people remove themselves from the membership of the church. They just simply disappear when it's initially confronted. And the initial confrontation is conversational. It's lovingly. We come alongside one another and we have conversations. We, we, we want to clarify, is this what's happening in your life? Is this, is this what's happening? How can we help you? And then depending on how things go, after a series of conversations and events that have unfolded, we may have to get to this point. But like I said, in my experience, most people remove themselves from the fellowship of the church. Now, now before we think, well, is this just a once-off situation? No, Paul actually had to do something like this on a few occasions. Have a look at this in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. He says, uh, speaking about uh, two rebels, he says, among whom are Harmonius and Alexander, look at what he says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so this is another situation. And what I find interesting is that Paul actually sees that this physical sign of handing people over, and he, in his mind, is like, it's as if we're handing them to Satan, because in his mind, it's either you're in, the, in or out. You know, it's kind of like you're either serving God or you're not serving God. And he says, but actually, it's for a sanctifying purpose, so that they may not blaspheme, so that there would be an awakening, so that there would be a destruction of the flesh. Do you see that? And Paul even applies this to himself. It's incredible that, that Paul has a category in his thinking of Satan becoming a means of grace to bring someone back. He even applies it to himself in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. Look at this. He says, so to keep me, this is Paul writing, to keep me from becoming conceited, proud, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and Paul had these incredible revelations, look at what he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And he describes it further, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, what's mind-blowing is not that this just happened, but who gave it to him? God did. This was God's design. And God's design for Paul was to protect him from being proud and arrogant. God gave him a messenger of Satan to buffet his flesh for his own good. For his own good. And you and I know this. Sometimes the most loving thing to do, because you might be sitting going, whoa, this, especially physicists, welcome. Uh, I, I, I agonized over this text on this particular Sunday, even thought of skipping it. But we don't do that. That would be shameful. But what we see here is Love in action. Sometimes love has to be tough. And so you might be going, is this, is this love? And I want to suggest it is love because the aim of this is 
Restoration. The, the goal of this is not to shame, not to name and shame, but the goal of this is repentance. The goal of this is to reconcile them with God because they're, they're deceived by what they're doing. And this is how Paul explains it. He goes on. He has the reason. Verse 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's what Paul is saying. It's a brilliant illustration. Paul reaches back into the Old Testament to the story of the Exodus where God rescued the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And in order to rescue them, what did they have to do? They needed to slaughter a lamb on that night called Passover. They would slaughter a lamb and they would take the blood of the lamb and they would paint it on the doorposts. And then the angel of the Lord came in judgment and what we see here is that the lamb represents two things. Sometimes we only think it represents rescue, but actually what the lamb represents is both rescue and judgment. Because there was a death, the lamb had to die in order to save. And so Paul reaches back to this Old Testament story and he applies it to the church and he says, you shouldn't have this situation among you because you're a new lump. If you're confessing Christ, then the old way, the old leaven should be removed from among you. Cleanse out the old leaven. Don't let it infiltrate. And the reason for that is because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you. There is forgiveness available. It's not that we are applying our own authority or we're kind of coming up with some kind of church-made thing. No, no, we're applying the gospel to your life. We, we're saying Christ was slain for you. You can have victory over this. You don't need to live this way. Christ, the Passover lamb, was slain and you're not living in accord with what you profess. Another way to view this is Paul is reminding them that Jesus is not only your lamb, but he's also like a lion. The book of Revelation reminds us that Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And in that sense, there is both power for forgiveness, but there's also judgment. Listen to what Jeremy Kimball says. He says, church discipline reminds us that salvation is for those who repent of sin and trust in Christ. That's all of us. We're all sinners and we're all trusting in Christ. And then he says, and for those who refuse to repent, even when the entire church calls them to account, the act of excommunication is meant to jar them awake, to point out the potential lion-like judgment that awaits. Our glorious Lord is lion and lamb. And, the ch and church discipline keeps that reality before our eyes. Now, lastly, what we see as Paul wraps up this conversation is the scope of 
church discipline. What is the scope? Let's read on in verse 9, and then we're done. He says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now listen carefully. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out the world because there's no way to escape. They're everywhere. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so he confesses Christ, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is another favorite tagline of our unbelieving friends, you know, that the church is so judgmental. The first one was the church is full of hypocrites. The second one is the church is so judgmental. And Paul here sets the record straight. Here's what we are to think when it comes to people being judgmental. What is absolutely clear is that the church should not judge the world. There is no room for that. We are not called to judge those outside the church. Why? Well, obviously, because they don't follow Jesus. They, they haven't put their hands up and said, we're followers of Jesus. They don't claim to live his ways, and so we can't judge them by his ways. That would be unfair. And Paul's point is, it is jo God's job exclusively to judge those outside the church. But on the other hand, then, it is our job to judge those inside the church. Let me say that again. It is our job to judge one another inside the church. Because we confess Christ and we proclaim to follow Christ and are united to one another because of that. Because we are brothers and sisters, we are to be accountable to one another. And therefore we are to bear witness to our profession. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, but we're all sinners. And you would be right. We are. We're all sinners, and we all have issues. But I want to remind you that this is not just a one-soft problem. This was a person who was in love with their sin. This was someone who was unrepentant of their sin. This is a situation of a brother who has rejected counsel, has rejected Correction has rejected input and still thinks he can be in church and in right standing with God. And so Paul, I think he ends this really brilliantly to show us the scope of where we get to apply this. We don't apply it to the, to the outside world, but we should certainly apply it to the inside realities of the church's life. And the reason for that is because, imagine if we didn't. Imagine if we didn't. Then there would be no church. There would be no distinction. There would be no difference. There would just be a mess. And so here's how I would love you guys to go home today. I want you to go home full of hope. 
Now, again, that might sound like a contradiction. But I want to suggest that discipline is always for our good. And I think we know that deep down. As parents, as just human beings, we know that bodily discipline, physical discipline, disciplining our bodies, disciplining how much food we put into our stomachs, how much uh, time we give ourselves to, to, to internet and life, and etc., etc. Discipline is actually for our good. And because of that, there is hope. Church discipline also is for our good. And we don't always get to play out this scenario, thankfully, because this is corrective discipline, but before corrective discipline, there is formative discipline. We know that. There is formative discipline. There is ongoing relationships, and there's community groups, and there's discipleship groups, and there's interactions, and there's, there's life-on-life discipleship happening where there is formative discipline happening all the time. And so I want to just suggest that I think that what Paul's presenting here is in the extreme case, but it's a good case study of how to handle a scandal. And I think we would all agree that, that, that this gives us hope. It gives us hope for those wayward leaders we were talking about last week. You know, the, the, the kind of really wacko leaders that we see in the church in Africa that are calling people to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I think this needs to apply in that situation. There needs to be someone calling them to account. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope that, 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 that actually church leaders would be held accountable for what they do, for their money and their spending and their, their teachings. But it also gives families hope. It gives families hope because it could be your mom or your dad in this situation. It could be part of your family. And actually it shows that the church really does care. It cares enough to say something, to do something. And finally, it gives us hope for the, for the person himself who's being called to account. That they would realize their sin, that they would acknowledge their sin and hopefully repent and be reconciled both to church and to Christ. And so I close with this, that I think church discipline in the event of it eventually maybe happening actually gives us hope that somebody really does care to speak into our lives when it's difficult. And it matters because the people of God matter. It matters because the people of God matter. It matters because the purity of the church matters. And it matters because of the glory of God to a watching world. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. This is a difficult word. But we want to be a people who are submitted to all scripture, submitted to everything you say in your word. We want to, we want to be led by your Holy Spirit, your spirit that wrote the word, your spirit that inspired the word. And we thank you for your instruction. We thank you that this is tough love, but it's what we need. And deep down in our hearts, we know that we need both formative discipline and corrective discipline. Your word also tells us that you're a loving father and a father disciplines his children.
because he loves them. And so, Lord, we do pray for the purity of the church, not just our church, definitely ours, but the purity of the church. We pray for the witness of the church. Um, Lord, we pray for a watching world who often are disappointed by what happens in the church. And we feel that. We feel the, the lack of integrity. We feel the, the weight of disappointment where there have been church scandals. Lord, we, we grieve over that. We, we're not boasting in it at all. We grieve over it. We are broken where there have been so many disappointments. But we pray that you'd give us courage, Lord, courage to apply both corrective and formative discipline. We pray, Lord, that we would never need to get to this point as we read about here. We pray that we really don't have to go there because we've been in each other's lives, because we've been shaping and loving and caring for one another, that, that we've been part of what you're doing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us and guide us and lead us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.